My name is Mason Cambridge. I am an historian of some minor fame, probably best known for my work on The Ignition, the term given to the destruction of the great city of Korriban. A little over a year ago, a man who claimed to be a survivor of Korriban's last days tracked me down. His name was Ciro Orente, and he had worked as a diplomat and spy in the city, and he told me bluntly that my book was wrong and he was eager to tell me what really happened. The usual caveat applies that the vast majority of this is simply what Orente has told me, mixed with articles from newspapers, diary extracts, and more to give a little more context and information. Our narrative had left Captain Vasker confronting Orente about her discovery in the tunnels beneath the city, the news of the presence of zombies shocking Orente back into action. But before we get to that, I should tell you all about a very strange encounter I had while working on this episode. In the very same coffee shop where I had first met Orente, a thoroughly pleasant man and woman approached my table. I commented that when I first met Orente, he didn't look much like me or the other people who were customers at the coffee shop. These two looked very much like me and could have been cast as affluent upper-middle-class man and woman in any play. Orente had warned me to expect such a visit. I originally thought he meant a visit by some menacing thugs who would try and scare me, but he had disagreed, saying that these days they reserved violence, or even the threat of violence, to only their most serious enemies. They introduced themselves very politely. I shall not disclose their names, but they claim to be members of the Friends of Korriban. This was one of the many historical societies that is devoted to the memory of the city. In fact, I have actually given talks at events organized by the Friends of Korriban. Being immersed in conspiracy and plots while working on this show, I couldn't help but feel a bit suspicious. I asked them to take a seat, maintaining as pleasant a disposition as I could. They quickly got to the point. They were very concerned with the material I had been releasing. They felt it wasn't real history, and worse, it was a gross insult to all those who had died in the ignition. They then added that if I continued this work, not only was I jeopardizing my career, but they would use whatever influence they had in the historical community against me. They said their piece, and then we each enjoyed our drinks, and I had a slice of cake, and that was that. Hardly the heavy hand of evil trying to crush a dissenting voice, but, well, it was something to me. Well, whoever they were, and whatever their intentions, I've decided to keep going with this story. I still didn't know what was going on in the city, but I knew enough. Someone, somehow, had smuggled zombies into Korriban. Considering it was believed the first outbreak started in the village of Stusmark, with a population of 57, the idea of what would happen in a city whose population ran into millions was terrifying. I'd grown up with the threat of zombie outbreaks being considered the worst thing that could happen, something that could end the world. There was no greater terror. Admittedly, there was a part of me that just wanted to run, get out of the city as fast as possible. But I knew I couldn't. If nothing else, I think Vasco would have shot me on principle. Vasco believed that it wasn't as simple as telling the people in charge. As to her, it was impossible that they weren't already involved. She felt that it was up to us to solve the problem. Overnight, she had written a long letter that she was sending to the Legion, but that would take time to get there, and then even longer for the Legion to respond. As politely as possible, I asked if they would believe her, and fortunately, Vasco understood my concern. The Legion took any report of zombies seriously and always investigated. Something of this magnitude from a Legionnaire would result in action. As soon as Vasco had finished her letter, she was ready to get back into the fray, and we tried to work out what to do. 
I was talking about going to journalists, after all the city was full of them, when Vasco cut me off by raising her hand and drew her pistol and pointed it at the door. There was a loud but not aggressive knock at the door. I stood, not sure what to do. It was early for visitors, or for the lady who cleaned my apartment. A voice called out my name through the door. It was Auric, presumably with more of his followers. I walked closer to the door, picked up the revolver Vasker had given me, and told him to leave. Auric put forward what he wanted very quickly. They were looking for Vasca, and they suspected she sought shelter with me after the destruction of the Legion House. I said nothing. Then Auric said that they just wanted to talk to me, or rather his employers wanted to. Vasca and I exchanged glances and wondered who his employers were, if they were not the Draven Empire as we'd suspected. Still, I was hardly going to open the door. I pointed to the window and gestured for Vasca to go. There was a sudden hard kick at the door, and then another. Reluctantly, Vasca grabbed the letter off the table and went out the window. With the third kick, the door burst open and men rushed in. I raised the revolver and aimed it at the nearest and told them to leave. The five men spread out, and I realized I should have fired the first chance I got. Auric stepped forward, hands open, again, insisting he only wanted to talk. The Brotherhood were almost done surrounding me, and so I pulled the trigger as they rushed me. I hit someone, I think, but it didn't matter. I was on the ground and the gun taken from me. I heard Auric giving orders to find Vasca, and then he turned back to me. He crouched low beside me and said that if it was up to him, he'd slit my throat now, or maybe take me back to their castle to continue my torture. But he had different orders. I was hauled to my feet and marched out of my apartment and bundled into a secure-looking carriage with Auric and two of his men. It was only a short journey, and again I found myself at an entrance to the tunnels. Once inside, I realized that things were actually quite busy, with a few dozen men and women working. All of them were armed. We kept going, deeper and deeper, until we reached a door marked with an unusual symbol. It was two halves of a black circle bisected by a bright yellow line. It was a symbol I recognized, as would many people who lived in the city. It belonged to a secret society that had supposedly existed in the city for several thousand years, pledged to upholding the glory of the greatest city in the world. The society was known as the Sakari, which meant the Eternal Guard. Auric opened the door and pushed me inside, where sitting at a table was Ambassador Devonier and First Minister Altassan. Secret Societies in and around the city of Korriban by Wheeler Dock while rumored secret societies have been said to exist across the world, it is rare that they are not in some way connected to Korriban. The twice-blind knights made the city their headquarters. The learned society of honest men had hypnotized at least a dozen of the people who had ruled the city. And the daughters of the dragon had perfected their poisons in the city. At least, that's what the story said. In actuality, none of these societies ever existed conjured into being by people who find the randomness of life in the world too terrifying, and the idea of evil, all-powerful groups were actually a comfort. Of course, the secret society that was most closely associated with the city was the Eternal Guard, a group who swore to uphold the greatness of Korriban. The stories associated with the Eternal Guard are contradictory and jumbled, but all tell of them visiting death and destruction on those who threatened the city, killing warlords, princes, and barbarians but they were just as quick at dealing with people inside the city who threatened its greatness 
removing weak leaders and helping bring down governments. The Eternal Guard was as diverse as the city of Korriban itself, its members from every race and religion that had ever made its home in the city. The earliest estimate puts the creation of the Guard at almost 3,000 years ago, but even the most conservative estimate is more than a thousand. It's hard to believe such an organization exists. As with all such theories, the complexities of their plots would collapse under their own weight. And the idea that an organization that, at the very least, is made up of hundreds, if not thousands, of people, and no one has ever broken their silence is unbelievable. Still, if we put aside dull facts, the Eternal Guard is rather good fun, full of stories of adventure and espionage. It had members as varied as princes and servants, child assassins, and even aged wizards. All quite ridiculous, but, like I said, fun. The ambassador smiled happily at me and said how he was so glad he could finally talk to me openly. My head swimming, I asked him if he was a member of the Eternal Guard, to which he burst out laughing. Of course not, Zero, he said. The symbol on the door, theatrics! Altassan limited himself to a wry smile while Auric took the seat next to mine. Devonier poured everyone, including me, a glass of wine and said that despite the early hour, I would need a drink. And so he proceeded to tell me his story. As news spread across the world of what was happening on the fringes of the Aralan Empire, few people believed it. And who could blame them? The undead? Monsters? It was ridiculous. With time, more and more stories surfaced and it became harder to ignore. But it wasn't really until the Aurelian Emperor had begged for help that the world really took notice. Cassiria had pledged what it could, money and ships mainly, but our contribution was minor really. There was nearly a year of fighting and building the defences that eventually managed to keep the undead penned up and the world moved on. The Legion were charged with maintaining the defences and countries sent them money so they could forget all about the horrors of the undead. But Cassiria didn't forget. Back then I was part of the embassy staff, a spy, much like you, and was part of the team that investigated the outbreak. We didn't believe such a momentous event just happened. Yes, we can be a suspicious, even paranoid people, but it's experience that made us this way. We didn't believe, as some did, that it was some sort of religious retaliation by some offended deity, but had some more rational explanation. But even so, why now? Why had this horror not happened a century ago? Our research in Korriban could only do so much, so we went into the infected territory for answers. Of course, this was a tremendous risk, and it was a death penalty if we were caught. As we needed Stussmark, one of the villages that had been singled out as possibly the start of all this, we were attacked. Not by zombies, but by mortal men and women. They killed my companions and were about to kill me when I saw one of them had a tattoo, the symbol of the Eternal God. And so I asked them, why had they caused the outbreak? I must admit, it had been a bit of a guess, but I could see no other explanation for their presence. That question saved my life. So they told me their story. They were the Eternal God. They protected the greatness of Korriban. The Aurelian Empire had brought the city low, so they got rid of them. They created the outbreak, knowing a crisis of that magnitude would destroy them, and allow someone else to take over the city. They were an odd group, 
made up of different races and religions, loyal only to their city, and happy for the Barris, the Dravens, or anyone else to hold it, as long as they brought greater glory. I asked them about the outbreak, and they told me that when the city of Korriban was young, thousands of years ago, the problem was common in the world, and the knowledge has been lost over time, confused with myth and superstition. But they kept knowledge. I was genuinely amazed when they told me that the zombies we were aware of were only one subset, and they could create zombies with different properties and abilities. The ones who destroyed the Arellan Empire were slow, but could last years, decades even. They told me of others, ones more resilient, ones that were faster. They hinted at even more horrific variations, but I already had what I wanted. It actually turned out the Eternal God had a number of ancient secrets, ranging from knowledge of zombies to poisons unknown to the modern world. They even had hundreds of barrels of what appeared to be imperial oil, another thing supposedly lost to history, liquid fire. Of course, chemistry has moved on, and we have far better substances to work with, but the benefit of liquid fire was that no one knew it even existed. No one was going to detect it. They then gave me a choice, join them or die. They had told me too much to be allowed to leave and not be a member. I told them, completely honestly, I was a Caesarian and a patriot, and I knew no loyalty other than to my homeland. But that didn't mean I couldn't help them. By this point, the three great powers had taken control of Caravan between them, a state of affairs the Eternal God found intolerable. But they were unsure as to how to proceed. They could kill and destroy, but political plotting was beyond them. I was released, returned to Caravan, and asked to meet with the esteemed council itself. This request was granted, and I travelled home to Caesarea. I told them everything. I had developed a plan that would work to solve both the Eternal God problems and be a boost to Caesarea. But we couldn't do it alone. We needed more men, more power, and more money. So I turned to Iridia and First Minister Altassan. He quickly came on board. Altassan liked my plan, but fought on a much bigger scale. My plan would boost the economy and prestige of my homeland, but Altassans would revitalize it and bring it back to the glory days, and of course, thrust Iridia into the first rank of powers. Altassan had a condition for his involvement, the complete eradication of the Eternal God. As far as he was concerned, they were an unpredictable element. Once we knew the secrets of the undead and their other weapons, we should get rid of them. Which we did. They were surprisingly trusting, killed in a hail of gunfire by Iridian soldiers. We've kept the symbols and whatnot, as they'll make a convenient scapegoat afterwards. After what, you ask? Well, in tunnels across the city are hidden groups of the undead, who will be released at the same time, placed to cause maximum chance of infection to the population. Along with a few more traditional attacks on strong defensive points with imperial oil, the undead will overrun the city. Of course, with the Congress taking place, numerous world leaders as well as their senior ministers would die. Such a disaster would send shockwaves around the world. And for well-placed nations, who had a little warning, they could position themselves to reap the benefits. Caesarea will resurrect its trade empire, and Iridia will become one of the most powerful countries in the world. 
I couldn't quite believe all this madness. I pointed to Auric and asked what he gets out of it. The ambassador smiled and explained that the few survivors would hail the bravery of the Brotherhood, who were tragically wiped out to a man defending the people. Devonier explained the reputation of the Brotherhood had taken a dip, and this heroic exit was the best thing for them. I said they were mad and were going to destroy the whole world, but Devonier said this particular strain of zombies had a very short lifespan. They could stay in the tunnels for days, but when they started running, they would die very quickly with each new generation lasting less and less time. The chance of the infection spreading outside of the city was practically zero. So, I came to the question. Why am I here? Devonier opened his arms wide and smiled and told me to join their group. They needed someone to replace Murray after all. I'd almost forgotten about Murray. I asked why they had killed him. Devonier told me that Murray had been on the fringes of the plot for some time, but when he was told what they were actually doing, he would have no part of it. Obviously, they couldn't let him live. They'd decided to make Murray a member of the undead, but after being infected, he had managed to escape before turning. A zombie being discovered at this stage was unacceptable. Apparently, it was Auric who had hunted him down and killed him. When I glared at Auric, he winked at me and told me that he had used one of the Legion pistols and mimed the exploding head. I nearly lunged at him. Devonier sighed and said he hadn't been surprised by Marais' betrayal, saying he'd been a good spy, but he wasn't really the right sort for this line of work. The ambassador pointed to me and said that he expected more from me, from a good family, a real Kassarian. I was silent for a long time while I thought about what to say. I was disgusted with those around me, disgusted by my own country, and frankly amazed anyone would countenance such a thing. Before I could give my answer, Altassan spoke, and he explained why I should join, and never have such terrible crimes been put in so positive a light. He was very convincing, and I will admit to my shame that I wavered. But then I thought about Murray. He wasn't a real Kassarian in the ambassador's eyes. Whatever that meant. Yet he wouldn't do it. What did I want to be? The ambassador could see where my mind was and made a last-ditch effort, telling me that if I refused, I would have to die. It was that simple. And I told him I'd rather die. Being a spy puts you in somewhat of a moral grey area, and I can live happily enough in that grey area. But the deaths of millions was just simply too much horror to contemplate being a part of. Devonier looked disappointed for several seconds and then snapped out of it. He stood up and announced that he and Altassan had lots to do and little time to do it in, and left me in the room with Auric, who looked very pleased. He nodded to someone behind me, and I was pulled from my chair and dragged across the floor. As the ambassador was heading out of the tunnels, he shouted back to Auric to make it quick. I struggled, but could do little as I was manhandled into a separate room and thrown to the floor. I couldn't help but notice the room was split in two by strong steel bars, and the area behind the bars was shrouded in darkness. Auric and a handful of his men surrounded me. Slowly, I tried getting to my feet, even though I knew what was coming. Someone hit me hard, and I was back on the ground, and for several seconds, blows rained down on me before Auric gave the order to stop. He grabbed me by my collar and dragged me toward the bars. The zombies were suddenly reaching out towards me hands grasping at my clothes, pulling me towards them. The grasp of the undead is like nothing else. It is not that the grip is strong, exactly, 
but there is a determination, a ferocity that I don't think the living can match. Fortunately, Auric pulled me free of their clutches, but I knew it was a temporary reprieve at best. Auric had drawn a vicious-looking dagger from his belt and pressed it against my neck. He slowly exerted more and more pressure. When he stopped, he frowned and turned to his men and asked them if they'd heard something. Suddenly there were shouts outside, and Auric's men ran to see what was going on. It was obvious that there was some kind of fight going on, and when Auric's men didn't come back, he looked worried. He threw me to the ground and walked towards the door. He peered out, and he swore loudly. He turned round and walked back towards me. My fingers worked loose the stone in the floor, and I swung it hard at his head as he approached. The stone made contact, and Auric fell back. I didn't look to see how much damage I had done. I ran forward and out of the room and into a vicious fight. I could barely tell who was on what side. Someone grabbed my shoulder hard, and I turned round to see one of Auric's men holding me, an axe in one hand. Then Vasca shot him. She pulled me out of the fighting, and we ran through a tunnel and towards daylight. When we burst onto the surface, I had to jump over the body of a border guard. I didn't know whether he was alive or dead. Eventually, we had to stop running, my lungs burning from the exertion. After I'd managed to recover sufficiently, I asked Vasca who it was who saved me. Vasca explained it was a group of Korriban nationalists, people who wanted Korriban to be its own independent state. They had jumped at the chance to attack a brotherhood stronghold. Vasca had tried explaining to them about the zombies and the conspiracy, but they had had trouble believing her. Some of them had even argued the attempted destruction of the city would be an opportunity to them. So she had changed tack and simply talked of vague, draven plans to control the city, and they had jumped at the chance to fight. As quickly as possible, I explained what I knew of the ambassador's plans, and we knew there was only one place to go. What would be the first target? The Grand Ball at the Palace of Vision. Article on the Grand Ball by Countess Valeria Cascade. It was to be published in the New Atlan Times. This very evening, at the beautiful Palace of Vision, in the Barset section of the city, there will be quite possibly the most stupendous social event in the history of the world to mark the arrival of the three emperors. Corban's greatest palace will be given over to the Grand Ball, and anyone of any significance will be there. Indeed, people who have no business with the Congress have made the journey just to attend this event. It will also be quite unlike any such function in that many of the rules of etiquette and precedence are being abandoned, mainly because no one really knows who's more important, a Draven Duke or an Asaurian patrician. For many Grand Nobles, this could be the first time they have socially mingled with commoners. Well, not actual commoners with their dirty faces and thieving fingers, but ministers and the like who didn't come from an actual aristocratic background. And I am led to believe such things are quite common these days in other countries. The night shall be spent eating, drinking, and dancing. People will fall in love, relationships end, and who knows, an inappropriate comment or a mean stare could result in a duel, or maybe even a war. Really, I recommend to the ladies of my station not to take a man seriously unless he's prepared to declare war. It shows real commitment. While the night promises to be spectacular, I do write with an element of sadness. After all, after the greatest social event ever has happened, what will I do with myself? How will I comment on another drab social engagement in some minor royal's decrepit mansion? Well, I assure you, I will not abandon my readers and will continue to share this brief glimpse into the lives of your betters. 
The Man of the Century by Alec Bader As the century draws to a close, many writers have spent time dwelling on what were the important events, who were the major figures, who and what was most important. This publication has no hesitation in stating that we believe it was Edward Carrick Altassen. Though born to a minor aristocratic family, he ended his life as First Minister of Aridia, leaving his country far stronger, richer, and more prosperous than when he assumed power. Indeed, most people in the know accept that the next century, at least in the early stages, will be dominated by Aridia, a position unthinkable before Altassen. Aridia had always had potential, an industrious people with abundant natural resources, a history of great thinkers, but divided by strong local identities that often trumped their national one. In the years before Altassan's rise, the country had been plagued by a run of weak, ineffectual kings, usually dominated by one powerful regional noble or another. A coherent national policy was practically impossible to implement, and when one noble fell from power, and another from a competing region took their place, policies were changed to suit the new one. Things had been so bad that some had advocated actually dividing the country into five independent states. The Altassans were an exceedingly insignificant aristocratic family who chose to live in the capital rather than on their country estate. Edward's father had been a moderately successful civil servant working in the treasury. Originally, it seemed like Altassan was set for a different sort of life. After finishing university, he joined the army, where he served for four years. However, in later years, Altassan said that he joined the army as a political move, saying a man in Aridia is not respected if he has no military career. Indeed, Altassan would frequently draw on his time in the army in speeches as proof of his patriotism when challenged over some of his more controversial measures. Upon leaving the army, Altassan found a post in the Ministry of War, dealing with resupplying units. Altassan excelled at this and within five years was running the department. He surprised everyone by asking to be transferred to the Ministry of Transport and Communication, this time as underminister, and again, his performance excelled all expectations. After the midnight coup, which saw the arrest of Archduke Lyoran Costell, Many ministers were removed from their positions and replaced by men loyal to the new power behind the throne, Prince Avail Pazdari, and in this purge, Altasen managed to jump into the position of Minister of Internal Development. For the first time, this allowed Altasen to cultivate the common man as a supporter, as he initiated dozens of building and infrastructure projects across the country at massive expense. That said, none of these projects were expensive follies just to please the mob. Altasen's rationale behind each project was clear. It was this heavy spending that attracted the ire of Prince Pazdari, who tried to clip the minister's wings. Altassan's full role in the following coup is unknown, but Pazdari was gone, and a triumvirate of influential ministers, including Altassan, seized the reins of government. Gone were the overly powerful nobles, and Altassan made a thorough job of reducing their power, influence, and wealth. Altassan and his colleagues sold their move as giving power back to King Ivan, but the king could not escape the influence of Altassan. At the age of 37, Altassan was appointed to the newly created position of king's representative, and in four years he became first minister, head of the government. He served in this position for the rest of his life. Not only did Altassan serve as first minister, but over his career he took on, at various times, 17 other ministerial positions, usually whatever ministry he felt wasn't performing well enough. It is too hard to reduce his decades of work into an article like this, 
but some of his greatest accomplishments include the Limit of Nobility Act, which led to a centralized state, the reshaping of the Iridium military into a streamlined professional force staffed by competent officers and well-trained soldiers, a foreign policy that bamboozled allies and enemies alike but always served Iridian interests, and, of course, his victory in the Iridia Staffer War, in which the longtime enemy of Iridia was thoroughly humbled. Of course, like many other world leaders, Eltasen died in Korriban during the ignition, and it is interesting to speculate on what he would have done with his remaining years. Eltasen's legacy was assured when the next three ministers were all men who had been his protégés. Eltasen remains a challenging figure to analyze. Few have done more to improve the lives of common Iridians, and he maintained a relatively peaceful foreign policy, but was a notoriously unreliable ally, changing sides when it suited Iridia and often seemed almost amoral, applying some meticulous equation to situations and doing what he deemed necessary, regardless of the consequences. And so, we come to actual conspiracy. Powerful men deciding to kill millions for the benefit of their countries. It is certainly hard to believe, but in Orente's view, this is what powerful men do every day, just in less dramatic a fashion and on a slower timescale. Many important people died in the ignition, and certainly Devanier was so far down the list as to be almost irrelevant, but apparently all of it had happened because of him. I have tried looking into Devanier's past, but there's not much there. A career diplomat, capable certainly, but no genius. Devanier's wife passed away several years ago, and while they had children, I'm not willing to contact them to ask if they knew anything about the possibility of their father weaponizing the undead and being responsible for the deaths of millions of people. There is a certain difficulty studying such recent history. The children, or even the subjects themselves, are still alive, and it's one thing to call someone who lives 500 years ago a murderous tyrant. Quite another if the person is around to argue. Of course, there is no dearth of information for Altasen. Whole books have been written about him, and Iridia is still very much the country he built. Considering his diaries, his letters, his reports have been poured over hundreds of times, every decision analyzed, every meeting recorded. Where's the evidence? Not only that, the man was famously dedicated to his work, which was running a whole country. Where did he find the time to be a key player in such a conspiracy? But, and I can't believe I'm saying this, I can believe he'd do it. The Reignition Theory was created and written by Richard Norton. The show's audio engineer is Jamie Stoffer. Anyone wishing to contact Jamie can send an email to jlsaudiobooking at gmail.com or find Jamie on Instagram at jls underscore audio. Mason Kainrich was played by Mike Queller. Mike is also the host of the Weird Tales podcast. Find it at the weirdtalespodcast.podbeam.com. See where Orente was played by Graham Rowett. Find Graham on Twitter at GrahamNY. G-R-A-H-A-M-N-Y. Wheeler Dak was played by Juna Loon. Find Jonah on Twitter at cryptic underscore MSG. Ambassador Devonier was played by Richard Norton. Countess Valeria Cassade was played by Nikki Atkins. Find Nikki at Bright Shadow Sky on Twitter. Alok Bader was played by Tom Kenworthy. Find Tom on Twitter at Deadybones. <laughs>